Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, how are you? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. I'm your host, of course, as always, Matt Browning. I am having a great week this week. We're having a little chat uh, just before we start rolling tape here with someone that I hope will soon to be a very good friend, Dr. Nicholas Pierce. He's joining me this week on the show. Um, Nicholas Pierce is, you know, he serves, he's an award-winning professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. And he's also the founder and chief executive officer of the Vocati Group, a global executive consultancy. He's a leading scholar, a lecturer, a trusted strategic advisor on values-driven leadership, collaboration, and change in organizations. Um, he served leaders on Fortune 500 corporations, social impact organizations, governments, communities of faith on six different continents. I'm guessing Antarctica is the missing one, but I'll have to ask him. Uh, he's also the author of the new book, The Purpose Path, A Guide to Pursuing Your Authentic Life's Work. His work has been featured on leading outlets like Business Week, CNBC, CNN, Forbes, Fortune, Harvard Business Review, Huffington Post, the LA Times, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, Time, and UrbanFaith.com. He is everywhere. And one of my favorite things, he's also an ordained minister, and he's the assistant pastor at the historic Apostolic Church of God on Chicago's South Side, where in addition to his preaching and his teaching duties, he also leads the Christian education and discipleship ministries of their 15,000 plus member flock. Um, what uh, what a, a responsibility and what a, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Dr. Nicholas, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Matt. How are you? I'm so good. I am so good. I'm a little tired. A little tired. It's, it's been a busy week, but I am so good and glad to be with you today. The pleasure is all mine. Oh my gosh! I mean, all fifty-fifty uh, at least. Well, we'll see. We'll, <laughs> we'll see where we go. So, you know, one of my first questions usually for entrepreneurs, and you you are bridging this gap. We've had a few people on the podcast over the year that have this, but not often. You have this a foot in entrepreneurship, a foot in faith. And you probably wouldn't see it exactly that way. Uh, my first question is, how do you see what you do in ministry work and in your faith life? Because I think all of us have um, whatever we would see as a spiritual endeavor or a spiritual life, whether it be um, energetic or church or, or uh, a philosophy. You know, everyone listening to this is going to follow probably something. How do you bridge that gap if there is one between your ministry work and your faith work and then, you know, the corporate work and, and the university work and things like that. Do you see that as all together or not? And describe it for me. Uh, thanks again for having me on. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to be with you. Uh, I don't think of myself as having a foot in the faith world and a foot in the entrepreneur world. Uh, I really view myself as having both feet in both worlds. Uh, a lot of people think of their activities and compartmentalize them and thus compartmentalize themselves. I don't really view myself as being compartmentalized. I do not leave my soul in the parking lot when I go into the classroom at Kellogg or when I go into a corporation or a boardroom. Uh, I bring my soul with me. I don't leave that outside. 
Similarly, I don't leave my management brain and scholarship outside in the parking lot when I go to serve our congregation. I do my best to do what Parker Palmer calls living an undivided life, where you're able to be a whole person 100% of the time. You don't have to segment and compartmentalize and do the work of putting on and taking off masks. Uh, I really try to do everything that, uh, in such a way that I would feel authentic and holistic in all of it. That's kind of what I assumed that you would say in, in a very good way. And I think what sparks a question like that, and that's where I wanted to start off on this leg, if we can. Um, yeah. I think about some of the people I've, I've known over the years and friends and, and listeners of the show that maybe in their mind, they might feel like it's disparate uh, compartments. Like maybe someone works at the bank and they go, man, I'm a big follower in faith. I love my church life. I love my family and everything. But when I go to the bank, it's like, I do feel like I'm walking in something different. What advice do you have to someone who feels like they have two separate sides to be able to do exactly what you said, which is have both feet in both places? How do you do that in, in kind of in practical terms when it seems that the environments are different in, in your environment, and maybe I'm making an excuse, your environment is, you know, you have academic and you have faith and, and I can see where it ties in, but can you imagine a, an environment like, is it like banking or like insurance? I don't know, or, or something else for that matter that seem separate. What advice would you have to be able to, to bring those not even together, but to have both feet in both places? Sure. Well, I think my environments are certainly uh, a great case study in that because I teach at one of the world's top business schools, right? So it is not a straightforward uh, proposition to say, yes, we've got someone who is a pastor and a business school professor. Generally, people think about business school and pastoral ministry as being polar opposites. Um, I think the book that I've written, The Purpose Path, is really aimed at that exact person you just mentioned. Someone who is trying to figure out how to bring the various parts of their lives into alignment. And what I think the opportunity is for them is to not simply think about their best and highest values as guiding how they show up at work. I mean, most people, especially people of faith or principle, are going to try to live out their values in their workplace. They're going to be kind. They're going to be high integrity people. Uh, they're going to cross their T's and dot their I's. Makes but perfect sense. The next step is to not just let their best and highest values dictate how they do their work, but to let their best and highest values determine which work is theirs to do, which work they are assigned to do in life, what is the work they cannot afford to not do with their lives, and then let your daily work be dictated and informed by that life's work mission that you know you've got to accomplish. Great, great answer. Did you, when you were growing up as a kid, did you figure, were you always a little bit academic? Were you always, did you grow up in the church? Um, were you entrepreneurial as a child? Did you have lemonade stands? What, what, what was kind of Dr. Nicholas growing up? What were you like? And did you expect to evolve into who you've become? <laughs> Goodness, uh, I had no such expectation that I would be doing the things that I'm doing now. I grew up in church. Uh, and I was called to ministry at the age of seven. No spooky experience, just a deep sense of knowing that this would be a significant part of my life's work. Yet, 
at the time, the church I was attending, which is the church that I now serve, the pastor was in his 70s. So I didn't really have a concept of what a younger person in ministry looked like. So I didn't really think of it as a career trajectory for me. I just knew it was going to be a significant part of my life's work. I was raised on the south side of Chicago to loving parents and a hardworking family that really talked about what is the career that you would like to be in? What is the work you want to do with your life? What are you good at? Uh, and how can you translate that into a solid income to take care of a family? That was what I was thinking about. And so as I went through high school, it became clear that I was pretty good at chemistry, pretty good at math, and could try to put those two together to become a chemical engineer. Uh, I went to MIT to study chemical engineering and discovered that I had no desire to use my life to play with chemical and biological systems. That was not where my interests were. That was not where I felt called to make a difference. I felt much more called to make a difference in the realm of human organizations with people. And that began this pivot towards what I'm doing now at the business school at Northwestern and certainly uh, what I'm doing with the Vocati group as an entrepreneur to serve and, and advise executives around the world. I had no clue uh, that I was going to be doing these things, even into my, my 20s. Part of it was just being committed to not wasting my youth and trying to be very, very carefully heeding to the voice of my calling and trying to figure out what that meant for me at that particular stage. But this was not a master plan. Explain, how would you explain the the concept or the the idea of, you said, heeding my calling? I think in in the faith communities, probably more than any other community that that gets thrown around a lot as a term in the entrepreneur world, it's usually what's my purpose and your book is a purpose path. Um, but break down how do you see you know this is my calling to me, I think it gets overused a lot and maybe sometimes misunderstood what's what would your careful kind of consideration be of you know what's my calling I need a lot of young people are saying, I want to figure out my calling or i'm I'm, str- I'm praying for my calling or I'm following it. And maybe you're looking at him going, you know what? That's not your calling, but you're 21. You don't know yet. How do you see that? And how do you help build people up along that path? Absolutely. What I see a lot of people doing in the name of following their calling is actually trying to figure out their passion. Yes. What is most interesting to me? What makes me smile? What makes me happy? What jazzes me? Uh, what seems cool to do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with passion. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live a life of happiness and contentment. Yet, I think when we focus on passion as the sole or primary arbiter of what we ought to be doing with our lives, that becomes a very, very self-focused and self-centered life. I think about purpose or calling as the work to which you have been assigned on the planet. That is going to not only result in your self-enhancement, but is going to result in human flourishing. Thinking about the work that you cannot not do. No, it's a double negative, and you know, the construction of that statement seems a little, little challenging for some people. My English teacher is ringing in my ear right now. Hey, look, but the I, idea, I, love, I love it. We've been studying, a lot of people listening study this neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, language work that we teach. And yeah. It's a powerful way to phrase a sentence, actually. So I, I love yes. love that you did that. It's what you cannot not do. 
Exactly. Okay. That, that, that is the gripping. That's the grabbing. That's the, if, if my life ends without having done this, I will feel like something was incomplete. If I'm handcuffed today and told that I would never be able to make that impact, regardless of its scale, whether it's in my home, in my community, or on the, around the globe, if I'm not able to do things that are going to lead toward that impact, I would feel woefully, woefully incomplete, and I would be just chopping at the bit to try to do what I knew was mine to do. It's important that we don't think about this as work that is considered social impact work or you know what we think of as nonprofit. There are a lot of spaces and a lot of work to be done that is very worthy, Matt, but it may not be ours to do. Certainly, some of that work may take place in the nonprofit sector, but certainly a lot of that work is going to be for people who are working in the public sector and government, for people who are working in the for-profit space. So just because the work may not have a direct social impact play doesn't mean that it can't be yours to do. What do you see when when you think about the difference between maybe – so I, I'm looking at – purpose, calling, my path, et cetera. Do you think there's an important distinction between I'm called to blank and let's put in a goal or an outcome? Like I want to end this or start that or help these people with this dream or this outcome versus on the other side is sometimes it's, this is what I'm meant to do. This is my purpose, which is maybe an activity or a particular job or a, a kind of work. So for instance, like maybe one per, you know, someone like you perhaps, right? I know there's inside of all the things you are, part of that is teacher, I would assume, right? Yes. And, and you can maybe phrase that differently, but yeah, you get where I'm going with it. So there, there's teacher inside you. So you could say, hey, my part of my path or my calling is to be a teacher or to teach or to, you know, illuminate people. And I just need to be doing that. Is it important that you stay at that high perspective of meaning, my path is to is to teach people and there's many ways that could happen or do you find that it's important for people to start narrowing down on the details of of the how and the who and the where and the when etc you know my purpose is to teach children my purpose is to teach literature to children etc do you think that's important to make a distinction either way there has to be some balance with this matt it can't be so global and and high level that it literally could mean anything. And at the same time, it can't be so granular that it is so narrow that uh, there's only a very, very small space for impact. I think there's got to be a balance. I do find, however, that a lot of people unfortunately equate this with career. And that, I think, is a limiting concept. The word career comes from the French word that denotes a racetrack. And that racetrack is quite honestly what many entrepreneurs desired to exit, which is why they are now entrepreneurs. They felt like they were on this hamster wheel going around and around in circles, going nowhere fast. Instead of thinking about career, I think about calling as vocation, which is really about one's life's work. If we're honest, if we look into the future, 20 or 30 or even 50 years, some of the jobs of the future don't exist yet. So if we're talking to a young person today, 
saying, what are you called to do? And they come back with an exact job description. It is quite frankly possible that their job description may not exist by the time they're actually ready to pursue that work. Instead of thinking about an exact job description, look at a realm or domain of impact. Understand who you are called to reach and who you're called to serve and how, and recognize that that will certainly shift with time. You don't have to think about this as a one-and-done proposition. At each and every stage of life, we do have the opportunity to reevaluate what we're called to do, what it is we are called to, to accomplish in these various stages of life. I don't think this is just a conversation for 20 and 30-somethings. This is a conversation for 40 and 50-somethings who have accomplished a lot but may feel that what they've accomplished isn't significant and want to pivot into a life of significance. And it's just as important for 60 or 70-somethings who are in what they're calling the third third of their lives, who are trying to figure out, at this stage, I may have 20, 30, 40 years remaining in front of me. How do I make this time count? Uh, So this is really a conversation for people at every life stage. And there are certainly pivots and reevaluations to be made, which is why I call the book The Purpose Path, not The Purpose Destination. <laughs> How this is something I, I talk about quite a bit, actually. You, you talked about reevaluating, and I think over the years, I've done a lot of personal coaching, business coaching as well, but especially personal coaching and transformation work, and then spiritually and discipleship and faith. We talked about church life a lot together. You know, one of the things I, I see show up often as a theme is people feeling like something has failed, they've gotten stuck. Um, you know, you, you've, you've come to the end, so to speak of the road. And I mean, I, I just, I just preach this message on Easter that, you know, it's not the end, it's the beginning. And if you think yeah. that the story's over, it's never over. There's always part two. Some people feel like, I think p- there isn't a part two or they can't see a part two. Um, you know, the, I had a purpose. Could you speak to the person who you feel like you had a purpose, but maybe that purpose is, is gone? is concluded or even has been taken away. Uh, example could be, you know, maybe you've had a disabled child and the child passes away. And now after five, 10, 20 years of, of being a caretaker, now that no longer, there, you don't have a purpose in that or that you, how you found it. How do you, how do you say kind of farewell to a purpose that was important, but is no longer necessary now? And how do you reclaim that? Because it can be such a such a desolate place for some people, and and I think you're I mean you're a, a guy of, of tremendous hope, and and I know you're a very future oriented person. So could you speak to laying down a purpose or a path when the time has passed, and how to how to move into the next chapters? What a powerful question, Matt. Uh, I hear this question quite a bit. Uh, when, as you mentioned, people have a loved one pass away to whom they provided care for years, if not decades. Um, It's a really tough moment because some people begin to wrap their identity around the care of that individual. So when that person passes away, the question becomes, well, what exactly should I do? What is left of me? Because I poured myself heart and soul into the care of this other person. And I think that it's an important inflection point to begin discerning what that next chapter is. It does not mean that the person was wrong 
were pouring themselves wholly into the care of that loved one. But because they still do have life left in their years, the question is, what next? There is a pivot point. There is an inflection point. And I think this is important to generalize beyond those who may be caregivers, that sometimes the difficult moments in our lives and the adversities that we face can sometimes be direction-giving in terms of what our purpose is. Sometimes those difficult moments, those places of crushing and squeezing and stretching and challenge can really unlock and release us into places of purpose that we may not have known about. But because of the pain we have endured, emphasis on the word endured, the pain didn't take us out. The difficulty did not destroy us, but the pain we have endured has now produced in us a degree of power and clarity around what work we must do with our lives, even if it is simply to be of service to other people who are in that same condition and situation that we were once in, to recognize that each situation and circumstance in our lives draws us closer and closer to being the, the very the very form of us that we were always created to be. Sometimes those circumstances have a very powerful formational effect. And if we only look at purpose as being equivalent to what makes us happy, we'll miss the real joy and the real productivity that can come out of painful places. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. In our time together, I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about leadership and and helping to lead people from essentially, you know, everyone's on a path, as you said, um, being spiritually and logistically over the teaching and the, the education and discipleship ministries of your church. So break down the apostolic church a little bit for me, uh, South of Chicago. Are, do you, are you in an arena because I'm not as familiar as I should be probably. I didn't grow up in the church world. So even though my wife and I were super active in ministry and we lead in our church here uh, uh, in Grand Rapids area, my goodness, like I don't know. Every time someone says a famous pastor, I go, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of him. I just, I didn't grow up in that world. So are you like an arena church? Do you have like all these different locations? Do you do satellite campuses? Kind of rough, just real quick, like how, how are you set up? And then how do you, lead in that kind of capacity? The Apostolic Church of God was founded in 1932 on the south side of Chicago and was founded as a storefront church. Um, on a good Easter, to have 50 people would have been great. Um, and the church has since grown in its almost 90-year history to its current size. Um, the church is one church in one location. Yes. Uh, we have an actual church building. We don't have an arena or a stadium. Um, we actually built in a community called Woodlawn through the 1950s and 1960s. And as the church grew, we expanded that current location. Uh, then through the 70s, when the church outgrew its location, we moved a block away and built from the ground up there and then expanded that and then built a new building right next door to it in 1992. And that building we have occupied uh, ever since. So it is a church, it feels like a sanctuary. And that's no disrespect to uh, many of the multi-site churches and other churches sure. that don't really have an emphasis on religious architecture. Um, but 
our church is a church building. It feels like a church when you walk inside the sanctuary. It is unmistakable. As a leader of the Christian education and discipleship ministries, we have oversight over all of the spaces in our church that are committed to the spiritual growth and development of people's faith lives, whether that's something as simple as Sunday school, which we have 20 plus classes going on simultaneously for people of all ages on Sunday mornings. We also have classes every night of the week from topics ranging from French and computer programming to financial planning to estate planning to various books, right? So our, our view of education and discipleship is really holistic. We're not just looking at building people to be better in terms of their faith, but living out their entire lives in a way that is faithful. Uh, so we do that. We have a discipleship program called The Good Life. That is a 16-week program that helps people to not only grow in their faith and better steward their resources, but ultimately be prepared to share their faith in sometimes antagonistic places. So uh, the work we're doing is really designed to equip and empower people to do the work of ministry themselves, not to rely on professional clergy to do the work that they themselves are called in position to do. Right. And then for now for you, if how many meetings uh, or services would you do in a week? So on Sundays, we have two or three worship services, depending on the the specifics of the weekend. Uh, And in our two morning worship services, we easily have anywhere between three and four to five thousand people at a time in the building. Uh, So we we have a, a pretty large congregation that draws from the entire Chicago metropolitan area. Do do you, do you, do you speak on the purpose path concepts and ideas often? Do you preach on that? How do you, how do you get into someone's life when you have 5,000 people in a room? And I don't mean that, that you don't do that. I'm certain that you do. How do you do that? And I'm asking for, especially the person listening that, you know, you want to in, in business, we want to grow and scale sometimes. And one of the fears about growing and scaling is losing intimacy, personal connection, transparency, authenticity, you name it. We, sometimes we we're a little bit concerned. We're going to lose some of that small feel, right? That family feel. How do you avoid, maybe it's the wrong word, but how, how do you counteract that and, and, and keep the connection when, when you, for lack of a better term, start scaling to bigger numbers? That's a great question. Bigger is not necessarily better. Uh, Things can grow, uh, but if they don't scale as they grow, then they will eventually shrink and cause damage to people's lives. Uh, The reality is what we're trying to do is not only reach people across the pulpit on Sunday mornings uh, through our worship services and live streaming and our television broadcast, which easily reaches tens of thousands of homes every Sunday morning, but also trying to also foster the life of what I like to call our micro communities. People really build family-like relationships with the people who they sit around on a regular basis in church or the people who they serve with in various ministries, whether they're on the greeters ministry or they sing in one of our choirs. Uh, They build deep relationships with the people who they spend time doing things with. And so the reality is part of the work of pastoral ministry uh, is to reinforce those communities. 
the vast majority of pastoral ministry takes place off of the stage. Uh, for a lot of people, they look at it as glamorous because it's lights and camera and <laughs> television. But the reality is good pastoral ministry is done in the trenches. It's done in hospital rooms, one conversation at a time. That's right. It's done in people's homes. It's done in moments of crisis, returning phone calls, being present for people. Uh, what I'm doing with the Purpose Path is that uh, I've been given the opportunity, thankfully, to be able to go into a lot of corporations and a lot of churches and convene conversations large and small, uh, sometimes as small as 10 or 20, sometimes as large as 200, or in some cases as large as 5,000, uh, really trying to make an investment in people's lives to help them think through these issues in a way that will actually be inspirational and aspirational, but at the same time, pragmatic and actionable tomorrow. Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff you're doing, man. I, I'm, I'm excited. I feel like we could keep talking forever, um, but I know your time is precious as well, and we need to, we need to move with the rest of our lives. I'm looking forward next time, uh, if you have the time, um, I, I drive through Chicago, Wisconsin. I'm going there more and more often. So hopefully we can stop and have a cup of coffee maybe and just uh, take a little bit more time together. I'd love to hear the rest of your story. Matt, I'd love to stay connected. That'd be great. Well, guys, you can get um, the Purpose Path book. You can find that at nicholaspierce.org. And that's Nicholas, the way you'd expect it. And then Pierce is P-E-A-R-C-E.org. We'll have that in the show notes. You can follow Dr. Nicholas on Facebook and LinkedIn at N-A-P-P-H-D. That's N-A-P-P-H-D. I was guessing at his middle name before we went to tape, but it is Nicholas A. Pierce. So N-A-P-P-H-D on Facebook, LinkedIn, and all social media. Um, grab that book. Uh, it, it, if this conversation resonates, man, that I, I, I couldn't think of a better place to start. Someone who has, again, both feet firmly planted in faith, and you can respect that no matter, no matter what your background is. I'm certain that all of us have a purpose. All of us have a calling. And what a great person to learn from who's doing this in life, in business, in faith, in everything you do. So, Dr. Nicholas, thanks for your time, man. It was really good to get to know you. Um, I sure appreciate this. Final question is, as we, as we look back in our life, and you look back at your life, you know, I know you're not, you're not young and you're not old. You're, you're probably somewhere in that range where I am that you're not sure how to call yourself. But as you look back at everything you've done and experienced so far, what would you change, if anything, if you could change something? Or would you decide to leave it all the same? I believe nothing happens by happenstance. So it's tough to say what I would change. But the, the piece of advice I wish I could have received and would give to my younger self is to think about education not as preparatory for a career path, but to think of education as preparatory for your calling. What skills, what insights, what exposure do you need to be able to execute your calling well, not just pursue a career? Great, great sound advice. Thanks so much, Dr. Nicholas. Thanks, Matt. All right, guys, again, you can follow Dr. Nicholas on Facebook and LinkedIn and, and all social media at NAPPHD and get the Purpose Path book, nicholaspierce.org. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show. If you're listening on one of our 16 AM FM stations across the country and you're driving your car, don't do it now. But when you get to the gym, when you get to the office, when you get home, pull out your phone, go to Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you use for podcasts. And make sure you subscribe to The Driven Entrepreneur, this show. You'll get it downloaded to the device that you're choosing free every single week, twice a week. 
to come at you with some really, really amazing, amazing, insightful interviews. Hope you enjoyed our conversations. As usual, get out there this week and crush it, and I'll see you in a few days.